Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did. Go check out Kyler Murray and his NFL debut. That's my favorite thing about NFL Game Pass. You can go back and watch at any time. And if you haven't watched a condensed game yet, you have to try it out. It's every play from the game back to back to back, so you can replay an entire NFL game in the fraction of the time it normally takes. It's how I'm able to follow all the MVP candidates, all the breakout stars, and, of course, your waiver wire pickups all season long. To see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash Pro Football Focus NFL. What's football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PML. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, fam. So, who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Palazzolo here with Sam Monson. We're both at the draft now. Sam, how you doing, buddy? Doing good, Steve. How about you? Great. Changed my background here mm. on Zoom. It's draft season completely, so that's why we're talking about our official finalized position rankings, which are over at PFF.com. Yeah, you're now the only human being that's actually in Vegas for the draft. Yeah, I figured that was a, a good background. Did well, you that's hear the thing. Uh, Goodell is going to be doing this whole thing from his basement? Oh, like really? A, like a true cliche. He's going to be doing The whole thing is going to be like a, it's going to be like this. It's going to be a virtual background from Goodell's basement. It's not Damn. really a cliche because it's his own basement. He owns it. Yeah, well, Unless I own a- mine. That doesn't stop people whinging about it being somebody else's basement. The other thing is, Goodell lives in like Westchester County, New York. I'm guessing his basement is quite the quite the uh, enterprise. Yeah, what does uh, a guy that makes over forty million dollars a year? He must must have some good internet. I mean, so have a good looking basement. Here's my, the the ba- my house in Dublin would fit in the basement of this house, right? In terms of square footage, I would imagine this house would fit in the basement of Goodell's, ba- or it would fit, yeah, it would fit in the basement of Goodell's house in West Gen- Westchester County, New York. Yeah, sounds about right. So he should be uh, looking good in style on uh, draft weekend. So, all right, man, do you want to get through the position rankings or what? Yeah, let's go. All right. So uh, it's over at PFF.com. Great job, Mike Renner. There's actually another update to the NFL draft guide. We're now well over 1,200 pages by my last count. What do we have here? I'm seeing 1,259 hmm. for pages. I feel like we're giving away too much. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, unfortunate 1, 000, it's already out there. 
it is out there. Uh, 1,259 pages in the draft guide. We now have some team-specific uh, depth chart analysis, some team needs, some best fits, some unbelievable stuff. So go get it, pff.com. If you're an Edge or Elite subscriber, you already have it. You just go to your, uh, was it the tool section? You just download the most updated copy. If you don't have it yet, go get it. So position rankings have been finalized. Let's go position by position. We're going to go quickly and efficiently with some takes. The guys that were a little bit higher, a little bit lower on, and the notable uh, names in the rankings at uh, pff.com. Starting at quarterback, Joe Burrow is our number one. Tua Tungavailoa at number two. There's a gap, though. And uh, what are your thoughts when you're looking at this top 10 and maybe the fact that Jalen Hurts sneaks into the top five after Bruce Gradkowski really liked him, the numbers really liked him, and he's one of those guys I think that's rising in NFL circles. Yeah. So it, I think this I think this is kind of talked about as quite a good quarterback class, right? Even though you aren't necessarily going to get like the five going the first round that we had a couple of years ago. But I think overall people kind of like this group. And yet to me it's – You've got Joe Burrow as the clear number one. You've got Tua as a clear number two. And that would be closer, I think, if if injuries weren't the question mark with Tua. Um, and as much as, you know, there's the video of his pro day going, there's the fact that almost all reports have been positive concerning his hip and his medical. I've heard a couple of things recently about the their, the reports not being so positive. But to be honest, that could be smoke given the proximity to the draft. But if, the, if all things were equal, I think those two would be really close. Um, that didn't sound as dumb as it did in my head when I, obviously, if they're, all things were equal, they would be very close. Yes. Um, but I think those two are very close. Then I think there's a significant gap to Justin Herbert, who is the sort of the most likely of the tremendously flawed but toolsy quarterbacks to actually produce something in the next level. I think Herbert has a skill set that could become something good. Then you've got like a series of guys... <laughs> I just I would be upset if I needed a quarterback and those were the only options remaining to me put it that way so here's the thing right we've talked about this quite a bit on the podcast the league is at a point where they don't really need quarterbacks though right well, like James Jameis Winston right so if you were if you're putting Jameis Winston knowing what you know and you're putting it against this draft class plus the fact that you think you have an idea of what their skill set is, but you don't know. You've never seen it at the NFL level, right? So there's this unknown quantity like Jameis is no worse than third on this list. Right. Right. And, and he's potentially right up there with Tua and Barrow because of the, the unknown factor. But like if we were ranking, knowing what we know about Jameis in knowing that there's an unknown with Barrow and Tua, it's Barrow, Tua and probably Jameis. And then maybe a significant gap into Herbert Hertz from. Jordan Love, Anthony Gordon, Jacob Eason, and some of these other guys. So he, and Jameis is still out there, right? Marcus only, Mariota is a backup. Marcus Mariota right. would be number third in this, number three in this class. Well, Jameis is a perfect comp because he's also stylistically similar to some of these guys where it's like there are massive downsides to having Jameis Winston a quarterback. There's also massive upside as well. And the difference between him and these other guys is we've actually seen him hit the upside it just comes with the down, right? So we've seen him throw for like 5,000 yards, throw, you know, 30-plus touchdowns. It's just it came at the same time as the crazy number of turnover-worthy plays and all that kind of stuff. Plus, Jameis is only 26. So it's not like you're comparing him to a Cam Newton where, you know, it's, well, is he at the end of his road? Is he, uh, you know, is he, has he already been broken by the NFL? Like, Jameis Winston is 26. He... he it's very unlikely that any of these sort of toolsy guys 
are going to reach an upside higher than what we've already seen from Jameis Winston. And the only down, the only question is, can they sort of bring less of a downside than Jameis has? But you're right. If you need a quarterback, it's pretty tough to find an argument for taking a Jalen Hurts or a Jacob Eason or Jordan Love over Jameis right now. So just so we can uh, just to go through these guys, we think you know Burrow's our number one highest graded season we've ever seen last year was spectacular. Tua, uh, two really consistent seasons of ninety plus. The injury concerns that we mentioned, um, maybe overrated a little bit by uh, my friend Trent Dilfer, maybe a touch. Uh, Trent has essentially compared him to any quarterback with a laser rocket arm, like Throws Dan Marino, it better than Dan Marino. Yeah, um, I love Trent. Uh, we've, we were colleagues at, uh, elite 11, you know, he runs, he ran the show. I, I worked with him a little bit there. We text often. There's a, a couple times where Trent's, uh, the guys that he's working with, he, he just, you know, he believes in them and he's mm. a positive guy by nature. So I'll just, I'll leave it at that. He's, he's I mean, been very positive with Tua. He's been very positive with other guys where maybe uh, he went slightly overboard as well. The Dan Marino thing is silly, right? Like yeah. whatever you think about where Dan Marino ranks in the pantheon of all time great quarterbacks, and there are people that think that he ranks like, you know, two or three ever, right? Yeah. Wherever you think he ranks in terms of overall quality, almost nobody disagrees with the idea that he had maybe the most gifted arm talent in NFL history. Like Release, if there's one arm, thing yeah. that he did better than anybody else ever it was just go out there and sling the damn ball. So if you're trying right. to claim that somebody is better than him at that, like there literally is not a higher uh, level of compliment you can give to a guy. And that would be fine. Only I, I don't think that he has the best natural arm talent in this draft class, let alone ever. So, you know, oh. it's a bit silly. I want to give the Cliff's notes, the Cliff's notes version of the rest of the quarterbacks here after Burrow and Tua. Herbert, I think our big limitation is uh, short area accuracy, um, has, a, has a big arm and all that stuff, good athleticism, but you know, he has to be in a perfect offense, vertically, uh, you know, vertically powered offense that's trying to drive the ball down the field. Jalen Hurts uh, doesn't throw the ball great. He's one of those guys that just gets this whole, he's just a winner, he's a leader, and there's something to all of that. He has produced well, um, but he kind of reminds of Tyrod in the sense that he's, he doesn't always play on time. We'll take some sacks. And I, I don't think his rushing ability, like if you if you hear any Lamar Jackson comps, just, you know, ignore them. Like yeah. he's a good straight line runner. Can I give if you, you a, give him handoff? Like if you give right. him dire, direct runs, he can he can run in a straight line pretty well. He's not bad. Can I give you a different comp that's yeah. sadly topical right now? Um, honestly, he reminds me a little bit of Tavares Jackson, who sadly just passed away in a car crash uh, yeah. last night, I think. But the same kind of idea, right? He's pretty athletic. He actually had a really good arm, Tavares. He his limitation was he just he didn't like throwing it until he saw it, right? And yeah. today's and in the NFL, you basically can't do that at this point. And the biggest critique I have of Jalen Hurts is just the processing time is too it takes too long, it's too slow, um, and that's kind of okay in the Big Twelve where defense is optional and you can get away with a lot of that, but. Like that's the biggest problem of most NFL young NFL quarterbacks, right? Is the processing time is just it's taken too long, and they need to get through that. But if you're already coming into the league, kind of behind the curve in that specific area, I don't know that you're ever going to reach the point where you get past that, right? You're just it's going to be too bad 
and you just get buried under the, you know, the weight of all that. It's, I, I just, I have a really hard time imagining a world where Jalen Hurts gets through that barrier. So there are still rumors about him going in the second round. Uh, when you compare him to some of the other guys, though, you can understand it is tough to sort out the rest of these guys. Jake Fromm, I think, has some Cody Kessler to him in the mm. fact that he does a lot of things really well. He's accurate. When things are on time and on schedule, he can deliver the football. But it's like if you're gonna if you're going to have Cody Cody Kessler's arm, it Fromm's a little bit better from that regard. You have to play on time all the time. Like if you're gonna become an Alex Smith type, you have to be really good at seeing reading defenses and this and that. And, and Fromm, there's just some plays where he holds the ball too long, takes it a right. sack, forced uh, a fumble, boneheaded decision in there. Um, so that's kind of like the Fromm limitation, but you know, he's played some really good football in the SEC. Yeah. And that was Kessler's issue as well, right? It's that he used to hold on to the ball too long and take too many sacks and cause too much pressure. And you just, you can't, if that is, if that is your skill set, right. And I honestly think there's a world where that skill set can still be a really successful NFL quarterback in terms of noodle arm, anticipation, thrower, good accuracy. If that is going to be your, your style, you have got to be at the sharp end of getting the ball out of your hand quicker than anybody else because it's the well only said. way that you can mitigate the fact that you have a weaker arm than everybody else, which gives you less time to work with once it's in the air. You know, you look at Cam Newton was always a king at this, right? But Dwayne Haskins has this right now as well, which is when he sees it and lets it fly, the ball just fires out of his arm. And it means that he can, he can be late on throws because he can get it in there into a window that other quarterbacks can't make. Now, if you're a Cody Kessler or a Jake Fromm, you never have that luxury. You can, right. And not only that, not only can you not be late, but you kind of have to be early on almost everything. Like, you have to be at the other end of the scale, which is I see it before you do, which means the ball is coming out before everybody else, which is what buys me the window to get it in there because once it hits the air, it's taken like five and a half minutes to reach you. I so was, it's the same thing. Sorry, the same thing we used to say about pitching, too. Like, velocity gives you leeway with your control. Right. Like, if you throw 100, you could get away with a few more down the middle. If you throw 88, you better be living on the black. And I think the thing that makes that really difficult is that specific skill set in terms of seeing it quicker is a really hard thing to measure. Um, I was listening to a radio interview. You'll love this, Steve. Um, rugby great, Brian O'Driscoll. And... Mm -hmm. He's one of these guys who is widely acknowledged as being one of the greatest players of all time, right? But he's, he's, he's got this sort of, he's like a normal person in terms of finds it really uncomfortable when people like refer to him as, hey, you were way better than everybody else. And he's just sort of sitting there awkwardly, not disagreeing with it because he kind of knows himself, but not embracing it being like, yeah, I was the shit. Um, so I was listening to a thing and he was like, because uh, he does commentary now. He's like a color guy. And he was saying that he's noticed that he still sees the game quicker than everybody else, right? So when the play-by-play -play guy is talking, he's like seen something that's happening and the play-by-play -play guy doesn't get it for like another second and a half. And he has to keep stopping himself from like running over, you know, the top of him and telling him what's about to happen. But that's basically the same skill set that these noodle arm quarterbacks need to have. You need to be able to see the game quicker than other people because you need to offset the fact that the ball is taking longer to get from your hand to theirs. And if you don't have that, I don't think you'll succeed. Oh, I needed a nice rugby analogy. Right? I at least made my baseball one nice and quick. Um, Look, Jordan I'm a better Love. storyteller than you, so. Mm. Jordan Love from Utah State. He's coming in at number six for us. He's the other 
the fourth guy that's probably going to be considered in the first round. Who knows if he actually goes there? I wrote him up a couple weeks ago. I say this about a lot of guys, but if you do take the 10 best throws, the highlight reel is awesome. He did have just, you know, a ridiculous amount of interceptions that were real last year. I think more importantly, though, uh, 32nd out of 39 quarterbacks that have come out of college and played in the NFL in just negatively graded throws. He just misses far too many. Uh, Anthony Gordon and, and Josh Love. So Anthony Gordon from Washington State, Josh Love from San Jose State, two guys that just graded pretty well that our projections like. If you're talking about the mid-round flyers, look at Anthony Gordon or Josh Love um, as guys where it's like, hey, these guys produced and there might be something there to develop. Uh, the other name that's just worth mentioning is Jacob Eason from Washington. So he's the guy that got beat out by Jake Fromm, mm. right? There's a lot of these things. This happens in college all the time. There's the big toolsy guy. Cody Kessler did this, actually. He did this to Max Wittick yeah. at USC. They brought in Max Wittick, 6'4", 230, cannon for an arm. And they didn't want Cody Kessler to win the job, but he won it. Same thing happened in Georgia. Not that they didn't want Fromm, but Fromm beats out Jacob Eason, who's got all the tools, looks like an NFL quarterback. Eason did play pretty well at Washington last year, but again, he comes in at number eight on our list. He's got some developing to do. It was funny because at the time, like Fromm was a clearly better quarterback than Eason. Like when he beat him out and then Fromm, I don't know that he ever really developed and became the quarterback we thought he would like, you thought he might be at that point. It's like he was a freshman, right? When he beat him out. Yeah. So it's like freshman quarterback beats out the big toolsy guy, does a lot of nice stuff, definitely looks better. You're like, wow. And, you know, a couple of years time when he's had some playing time, he'll be amazing. And it's just like he didn't get any better. It was like uh, Josh Rosen. It's like the right away was exactly what you saw at the end as well. It didn't get it didn't change. And then Eason actually goes somewhere else, does kind of develop, or at least in the last year was better than than we saw from him when he got beat out of Georgia. But again, the, like it's, there's a lot of concerns about him and how much better he's going to get. All right, let's fly through some of the rest of these positions. Um, again, over at PFF.com, you've got a uh, a list of just uh, all of the top tens by position. You could click on the links and get to the actual uh, write-ups on all of these guys. Uh, running back, the position that we say, it's completely interchangeable, but a couple notes on this group. We have DeAndre Swift of Georgia at number one because of that receiving ability. I still look at I, I would look at Jonathan Taylor, who's number third on our list. Right. If you're still looking to. And number so third. this is the big question, right? If you're looking to have the every down runner in a gap scheme, zone scheme and all that stuff, Taylor might be your best option. Like if that's how you're going to mm-hmm. use your running back, like if you're just not going to be uh, if you're not advanced enough to uh, rely more on the pass game and you want that old school attack, I would probably lean Jonathan Taylor of this group. Do you have any uh, thoughts on guys in this group or? Well, way to so overall, reshuffle these guys. It's interesting because overall, I don't know that anybody knows what you should be focusing on as a running back anymore, right? Or uh, as as a as a team, as a roster building person, what kind of running back should you be going after, right? Because we know that the passing game is more valuable, but on the other hand, we also are starting to realize that targets to running backs are not particularly valuable at all. So, do you actually target a guy who's going to be a really useful receiving weapon out of the backfield? knowing that overall that might not actually be helping your passing offense because any, uh, any pass, any targets that you manufacture for a guy out of the backfield are targets that aren't going to a tight end or a wide receiver that are potentially more valuable. Now you want that I, I guy would, to be a useful outlet, but how much do you want to lean on that ability? I would say, I, I don't think it's that clear cut, right? I think, so I, I always find it interesting when the analytics guys 
will give us something that's not necessarily number generated. It's almost like um, it's almost like it's like a principle of economics. It's like, all right, if you're going to draft Jonathan Taylor, the issue isn't Jonathan Taylor or the fact that he's not good. It's the fact that you're going to feel inclined to give him 20 to 25 carries. So it's kind of like, well, if you spend a ton of money on Le'Veon Bell, you might feel inclined to get him 90 targets to your point. But I do think there's a world where if you are smart and you do prioritize receiver tight end and then receiving running back, the receiving running back is extremely valuable as the fourth option. So I think as long as the priorities are in place, like if the Panthers were like, listen, I know we actually have a pretty good receiving core right now, but McCaffrey needs his touches. He's got to he's got to touch the ball 25 times. I don't care if it's a run or a pass. Then they're doing a disservice to their offense. If they're like, hey, we've got DJ Moore and we've got Robbie Anderson and we've got this other option, Curtis Samuel. And then, oh, by the way, we can deploy Christian McCaffrey from a game plan standpoint as a receiver in the slot out of the backfield, design a couple screens here and there without force feeding him too much then I think you're getting the most. And I think that's where DeAndre Swift comes in uh, because he did line up at receiver quite a bit at Georgia and, and is probably the best receiving back in the class here. I guess, so my overall point is, I'm not sure that we generally and collectively the NFL knows what the best running bank for today's NFL should be, right? And what you should be going after. I think there's a good argument that actually what you want is a guy that will consistently have the best chance of maximizing um, or adding value on top of the blocking, which is the thing that generates most of the rushing, right? So the idea that running backs are largely a product of their environment and the single biggest thing you need to have rushing success is a good uh, blocking unit and then the pass game that can take guys out of the box and all these kinds of things. And then somewhere down the line, there's the running back. Um, But what I think having a really good running back does is maximize the percentage chance of that guy overcoming blocking, right? So this idea of you can overcome bad blocking, it's just, it's really hard to do long-term. You can do it for a game easily. You can do it for a season sometimes. You very, very rarely can you do it for longer than that. Um, But I think the way you maximize the chance of that happening is by getting one of those difference makers. So a guy like Jonathan Taylor, I think, is the best difference maker available in terms of maximizing that rushing success the question is is he bad enough as a receiver to make that a problem right do you have to treat him the way you treated adrian peterson in terms of you can't even be on the field in the most critical downs or that was ronald jones's problem coming out of usc it's like you had 45 targets and dropped a bunch of them like your your receiving might be too bad to be any kind of part of the passing game. At that point, I think you have concerns. But if you don't, if you're not that bad as a receiver, I think you still lean on the guy that you know has legitimate vision and, and all the skills you need from a traditional running back. If you do want the pass game help, though, guys like Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, you know, we've gotten the MJD comparisons because he's short and tough to tackle. J.K. Dobbins is pretty good as a receiver. Antonio Gibson is essentially a hybrid wide receiver running back. Cam Akers can catch the ball. Lynn Bowden Jr. played receiver slash quarterback, and we're listing him as a running back. So there is um, an interesting group here. Um, I would be fascinated if the Saints, if the Saints are truly, if they're going to be smart and they want to move on from Alvin Kamara, they might be able to find the replacement here. Like if you're if you're still if you're going to be smart and not get into that second contract stuff, um, maybe the Saints should be looking for that next yeah. guy. Um, at, at running back. Let's move on to wide receiver. This is the class 
uh, everybody's been talking about quite a bit. And I guess our final rankings have Jerry Judy number one and C.D. Lamb number two. We've been talking internally. This thing literally switches every single day. We've talked about these guys quite a bit, but let's just run through some of the skill sets here in this receiver class. And I've got some comps, too. What are your thoughts, at least at the top here? So we talked about it last time. I'm kind of on the fence, right? I, I can I, I had Judy as number one all the way along, but the longer it goes, the more I'm conf- the more I'm I think C D Lamb has the higher upside, but Judy has probably the higher floor, maybe. Um I'm really confident that Judy's skill set translates immediately and he'll be a really quality wide receiver right out the ba- right out of the gate. But I think Lamb can do more things well than Judy can. So I think if you're looking for the, you know, a guy who can become an all pro, I, I think you would be more confident in Lamb being that guy. By the way, when we were discussing Jameis earlier, I meant to mention Cam Newton as well. Let's just, let's just understand that right now in the NFL, Jameis Winston's out there. Cam Newton is out there and Marcus Mariota's a backup. Well, and, I mentioned uh, it for you. So you're good. Yeah. I, I just, I don't want to feel like I, I forgot about him as well. Will you, uh, we have to correct your Vikings thing from last week. You made a mess of that. The trade, the Kevin the Williams story. Note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't do it deliberately at all. They were trying to get a trade done, and while they missed the clock trying to negotiate the trade, two people ran up to the, the deck and threw their cards in. I was trying they to give them credit. I might go rewatch that 2003 draft. That was awesome. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's it, with receiver, I, I think of all the positions, right? Receiver, corner, and safety. Those pass game positions almost always are going to come down to usage, right? Are you going to play a corner on the inside yeah. or outside? Are you going to play a receiver inside or outside? Are you going to give them yak opportunities? Are you going to use them as a deep threat? So I think a lot, and then are you going to have a quarterback to get them the ball when it comes to receiver? That's what's going to determine production for some of these guys. It is. I, I think the top, the top two guys probably are bulletproof in terms of that, right? You can yeah. plug those guys into any system and more or less any role, and they'll be really good. Everything after that, I think you're right, is it's a stylistic thing. It's a what is this guy good at and what does he succeed doing? Um, there's maybe one or two other guys lower down that I think could become the sort of, or um, they could become the every down, every role receiver in any offense. I'm just less confident in that happening than you would be with CeeDee Lamb. But you're right. The, I think all the top 10 could be superstars if they're used the right way by the right team. So uh, the rest of Henry Ruggs, we've talked about quite a bit as this, you know, Deshaun Jackson, hopeful, Mike Wallace, hopeful as far as the depth, uh, deep threat goes. I think of the controversial ones, uh, I was with Renner on the call when we were trying to finalize this thing. And he was like, man, LaVisca, I got to keep him at number four. And and, and look, we, we, we don't have the medical stuff, right? So if, if it becomes a big medical issue, that's fine. I could see him knowing that there's Jalen Ragers and T Higgins and all the Justin Jefferson's available. I can see LaVisca falling, but his skill set is, uh, is still pretty awesome, right? As far as uh, mm-hmm. running back types of skills has receiving skills. So we still have him at number four. And uh, I think he could do some, some really nice things if, if given the opportunity, uh, Jalen Rager could be that deep threat that you're going to get. If you miss out on Henry Ruggs, um, he's been, the video four two man. Everybody's th- running video four twos. He's he's got it as well, right? His was the his was one where the like the angles were so bad that you couldn't even check it though. Like at least the previous ones, the LSU guys, you had like a clear sideline view and you could actually frame by frame the video and check the numbers. Like Rager's, the whole thing was done like from the distance, 
straight on, so you had no idea what, they, what he ran. Um, your boy Denzel Mims ended up dropping a little bit in our final rankings. Some of the other guys didn't love him as much. Hmm. He's going to finish at number 10. Big debate between him and Brandon Ayuk from uh, Arizona State. Ayuk's got some big playability. Great as a punt returner, kick returner there. Mims, I sent you this over the weekend that you disagreed with, but I think when you see Dwayne Bowes grades and stats through his career, don't you think that's a, a fair comp for Denzel Mims? Well, the point I was making to you is that I don't think Dwayne Bowe was Dwayne Bowe for 80% of his career. Like, the his career was like a season and a half of really good play, and then everything outside of that was bizarre. You have to go downstairs, buddy. Uh-oh. Thanks. Uh-oh. Sure. Uh, <laughs> you can have your candy now. Um, I was I was using the cop because, like, Bo at his best was running slants and posts, and he's got a good frame, and I think Mims does a lot of that stuff extremely well, even though they threw him 97 million fades and, yeah. and whatever. That's not necessarily his the strength think, of his game. I mean, I also think Mims does almost everything better than Bo did. I think he's faster than Bo. I think he has better releases and right running skills than Bo did. I think Bo became a big body that was fast enough to be really dynamic for like a season and a half. I think Mims can be so much more than that. Um, the cons- like the question with Mims is why was his college tape so underwhelming for a guy with that skill set and the ability to beat people the way he did all, all week long at the senior bowl. And I think there's a huge part of it that is because the offense he was in, he wasn't running enough routes to scare people away or to threaten them with anything other than what he was running. Right. At which point it becomes really difficult. It becomes really difficult to fake somebody out with your release and with your route when they know you're not running that. Well, that's fair. Um, Justin Jefferson from LSU. I got some Victor Cruz vibes out of him. And when I looked at Jefferson, the big question about him is how much he won from the slot, didn't have to play on the outside. And it wasn't just winning from the slot. It was just... Uh, you know, deep over routes and all that stuff. But even when he was running the deep over routes, it's like, man, this dude's got some nuanced route running. He knows how to set guys up. Like he was really good at a lot of things. I want him on my football team. That's the thing. Even, even though there's some question marks about him facing press and maybe playing on the outside. Sorry, hang on. The big news from this top 10 is that we have Michael Pittman above T Higgins. Yeah, he was a, a late riser, so to speak. Yep. So so here's the thing with Pittman, right? Another guy with a big frame who's going to boss people at the catch point and all that stuff. But then he's, he just ran fast at the combine, right? Like when you said so to me, that's that's how you use the combine stuff, right? Like you have this guy pigeonholed as like uber possession guy. And then it's like, oh, wow, he is actually more athletic maybe than we anticipated. And I think that's where Pittman is better, better than people thought. The idea that we have him above Mims, by the way, is just lunacy. Oh, well, tell, tell Michael. Hey, tell him. I, I'll, I'll tell him. <laughs> um, but that's the beauty of the receiver position here, right? Like a couple years ago, the class were Calvin Ridley, uh, James Washington, Michael Gallup all came out. We looked at those guys and we said, first, uh, a lot of them are going to be dependent on where they go and how, you know, this and that. I think Ridley ended up being our our top guy, but you really liked James Washington. The numbers really liked Michael Gallup. A lot of it's going to be a usage pattern for these guys. And there's a certain point where there is some interchangeability, right? And I think the NFL is even talking about that wide receiver three and cornerback three are the big question marks. Nobody, 
Uh, boards are all over the place, which is going to make for some crazy picks, I think, even in round one. All right, uh, the tight end class, I don't want to touch on it too much because I, I don't think there's anything it special. Yeah, it's not good. It, it's nothing special in this class. Uh, Cole Komet from Notre Dame, probably the best all-around version, but you've got guys like Hunter Bryant, little undersized, pretty good receiving threat, uh, but they're all going to come with question marks, and this isn't necessarily the class to uh, completely revamp your uh, your tight ends. Where are we on Chase Claypool? Is he a wide receiver or a tight end for us? I'm not sure where we find. I think probably wide receiver, and he just missed the, the top ten. I can't remember what, what we called him position-wise. But, yeah, there was talk about his massive size coming in, what, about 240, that you could uh, upgrade him to tight end. But anything, anytime that happens, like Jonathan Baldwin was – I think, weren't they talking about him doing that, coming out of pit? Right. But I think if you have a particularly crappy tight end class, you might be yeah. more inclined to do it. I think Ricky Seals-Jones is one of the recent guys that actually did that. And he was like a skinny wide receiver and then became a tight end, but not really kind of a tight end at the NFL level. So Mm. um, the tight end class uh, just isn't great. But you check out PFF.com for the full write-ups on all those guys. Offensive tackle, we talked about it last week as far as the narratives. This is the best tackle class we've seen in a few years. Uh, well, Andrew Thomas is going to come in at number one. Do you want to just run down through the names, even if we're not going to cover, cover tight ends very much, at least give people a 10? Yeah, so Hunter Bryant from Washington will be at our number one. Cole Komet from Notre Dame. Adam Trotman from Small, Dayton. Uh, Bryson Hopkins from Purdue. And then Stephen Sullivan from LSU rounds out the top five. I'm not going to read lists here, Sam. Well, that's what uh, that's. Have you learned nothing from Renner? That's what the people want. Endless list, red alive on the air. <laughs> that's, that's your tight end class, guys. Uh, offensive tackle. Uh, remember, we're talking about four guys potentially being in the top ten, not the four that we have as our top four. I don't want to trash Makai Becton over and over again because I don't think he's a bad player <laughs> at all. And, of course, our friend Duke is uh, training him and posting all of the hype videos all over Twitter right now. He's not Mekhi at least comparing Becton. him to Jonathan Ogden. If, if if that was if Duke was taking the Trent Dilfer school of uh, hype. Oh no, there's there's Orlando Pace stuff out there. Well, that was that was four. Well, someone else was doing that. Anyway, Makai Becton has all the tools to be a first round player. We just think that there's risk associated with it. That's all. Um, Andrew Thomas, our top guy at Georgia, probably the cleanest just as far as pass pro and run blocking goes. Tristan Wirfs, the guy who tore it up at the combine. Um, between Wirfs, Jedrick Wills, just and Josh Jones, just good combinations of, hey, these guys, I feel good about them in the run game. I feel pretty good about them in pass protection, and that's why we really like this this class. And Becton can destroy people in the run game. Um, the wild card, wild cards are going to be the guys 6, 7, 8, 9. Um, ben Barch, Ezra Cleveland, Jack Driscoll, maybe, but Austin Jackson. Uh, some of those are guys are getting first-round hype. Ezra Cleveland from Boise State potential first round Austin Jackson from USC potential first round Isaiah Wilson who we have as the ninth graded interior lineman getting first round hype as a tackle um, there could be some late first round craziness with with some of these tackles here this that's what's really interesting to me right is that so I get I get the Mackay Beckton's right where okay you might be like a round off with these guys because someone is just chasing the insane upside of a guy that size and moves like that that can do what he can do that makes perfect sense to me what never quite makes that much sense is the random like mid-round flyer that somebody takes on an offensive line at the bottom end of the first 
a guy that doesn't have, you know, all-world, all-time physical freakiness the way Mackay Becton does. Like, I don't quite understand what propels some of these random names into the bottom of the first round, other than this idea of, I mean, he's perfect in our scheme, therefore he's a first-rounder. Off the top of my head, I know Dwayne Brown was kind of like the afterthought late first-round tackle that turned out to be really good. Mm -hmm. And then... Ryan Ramchek doesn't count because it was an injury concern. Um, Ryan Ramchek was a top 10 offensive tackle who happened to go, I think it was last in the first round, right, to the Saints. It went Reuben Foster 31 and then Ramchek 32, and he's been an absolute steal because mm-hmm. he's awesome. Um, but there, I don't know if there's a great history of like, here's this late first round, uh, you know, late first round tackle. I actually posted the stats of all the tackle grades of guys that we've seen drafted since 2014. Uh, Ramchek's been the top guy. Ronnie Stanley's been up there. Jack Conklin. But there is a wide, wide range. There's 190, a couple guys in the 80s, few 70s, few 60s, bunch of 50s, bunch of 40s. Um, there's a wide range of hits and misses when it comes to offensive tackles in the first round over the last few years. So it looks like a great class, but history also tells us not all these guys are going to be uh, pro bowlers here, you know? Yeah, it also feels a little bit like quarterback where the guys that you're sure of go high. And then the ones you're not, it's really, it's a hell, it's like a crapshoot after that, right? Yeah. When you're trying to sort of, and and the the ones after that, there's always this temptation to try and jump up and grab them at the, you know, lower than the sure things, but, you know, higher than the rest. And we'll, let's see if it works out there. And it, it doesn't because they're not that good. There's a reason they weren't in the, the group with the top guys. You know what I think? So like with Ezra Cleveland and Austin Jackson in particular, Part of the reason for the hype is they move like first round offensive tackles. Like yeah. if you just looked at Austin Jackson's footwork in the and whether or not he's in position, he's outstanding. Um, he's a little little soft in the run game, but like he's outstanding until he's got to like actually block somebody and you know punch him and time it up and all that stuff. So there is a lot of this like, well, I can, his lower half's good. I could fix his hands. I think if you're looking at Austin Jackson and Ezra Cleveland, that's what people are looking at. Isaiah Wilson, just a monster. Uh, who's solid. The guy I'm really intrigued by is Matt Peart from uh, UConn. Big, long, uh, played right tackle for them, went to the Senior Bowl and just produced really well, and he, he hasn't played a ton of football. So I'd Senior rather get huh? a Matt Peart in the third round. What's that? Senior Bowl, huh? Senior Bowl guy, too, yeah. Hmm. But he produced, he graded well at UConn as well. So uh, offensive tackle, it's good overall. It's deep. We like the class. Interior offensive line, maybe not as strong. I don't want to go through all the names here either because it's interior offensive linemen, but Cesar Ruiz is the guy that everybody's calling the best center. And there are rumors that the Cowboys love him in that with Travis Frederick retiring, Ruiz could actually be the pick at number 17. That feels like a Cowboys type of thing to just say, let me lock up our center for the next 10 years. Now that Travis Frederick has retired, would that be too high for the Cowboys to get a center given some of their other needs? I mean, probably the centers, the the top center always seems to go higher than I think people expect them to as well. That's that feels like a trend is where you're looking at this thing. at Well, in isolation, maybe the top guy is worth, you know, that number 32 bottom of the first round kind of pick. Right. And the top guy always seems to go, you know, in the teens or the 20s somewhere before you get to the back end of the first round. I, those guys seem to get pushed up maybe because there's only ever like one or two you know, every season that people are confident in, in terms of centers. Yeah. I also think that it's like from a team building aspect, you're like, okay, I just need one guy. I need one starter at center. And if I could just knock it out, 
Um, there is this – for some reason with offensive linemen, the term 10-year starter comes up more than any other position. Um, and I really think it was because for years people couldn't evaluate offensive linemen. So it would be like you start, you're going to start until you can't start anymore, and you're my guy for 8 to 10 years, and that's what it is. Where it's they like were, if you have a receiver and he only has like 50 catches, it's like, oh, look, you only have 50 catches. You're bad. Yeah, it was because they were literally being measured on starts. Right. Like every, I mean, you see it now, even even now, team signed some random guard, started eight games last year. It's like, oh, well, that must mean he's half as good as the guys who started all 16 games. Um, so the other intriguing names here, we're really high on Jonah Jackson from Ohio State. Nitain Muti from Fresno State is number one. It's Mike Renner's. I mean, that is his guy. When we talk about guys in this class, I think we're doing a My Guys uh, article this week, Sam, where we only mm. get to pick one. I thought we were each going to get three, but uh, Muti, I think, might be Mike Renner's guy from Fresno. Absolutely wrecks people in the run game. So, yeah, he's uh, hashtag fun to watch. Ruiz does come in at number three. Damian Lewis from LSU is number four. And then the other intriguing names to me, Tyler Biotish from Wisconsin, solid yeah. center who I think fits well. In the Rams scheme, as does Matt Hennessy, the Temple Center. If we're talking about like the Rams upgrading on the interior, those out, or those outside zone teams, I think both of those guys fit well. As much as the tackle class, I think is one of the best that's come along for years. Does this feel like a disappointing interior group? Because so Muti in particular feels like a poor man's Will Hernandez to me. Yeah, and I don't think Hernandez was even the best interior lineman in that class, right? I think it's good for where you would want to draft guards and centers right in the second <laughs> in, in the second and third round like is the, there's there is no quentin nelson there isn't a guy that we would put like a will hernandez right those guys are in the same class um both guys we put first round grades on we said isaiah win a couple years ago we were like hey the nfl is going to project him to guard we would call him a first round guard but i don't think any of these guys are first rounders but like a logan stenberg big strong kid from kentucky who's number 10 on our list he could be a he could be a solid starter. So I think there is some depth to it. There's just no stars, right? As far as guards and center stars go. All right, that's the offense, man. Let's Done. move to the Quick. let's move to the defensive side of the ball. Uh, this list starts on the defensive interior. I think this is um, it's an intriguing group at the top, and we made the move, Sam, at PFF to put Javon Kinlaw at number one over Derek Brown, uh, mostly because of. Uh, Kinlaw's potential as a pass rusher over Brown. As we should. I think that's the only sensible move to make. I just, I don't see the, I don't think the ceiling is high enough for Derek Brown to be the top guy in this draft. I mean, ultimately, that's kind of what you're chasing with any of these guys. There's the spectrum of how they can produce. And Derek Brown, I just don't think can possibly bring enough as a pass rusher to justify being ahead of a guy like Kinlaw, who could be a really, really good interior disruptive presence like Derek Brown I mean I think the Akeem Hicks comp is the one that Mike Renner uses for Derek Brown I honestly think it's perfect because like that is his ceiling the best he could possibly be is an Akeem Hicks type of player who is really really good but if there's a lot of room to be better than that like if Javon Kinlaw can become one of the better pass rushing forces in the NFL he's more valuable than even Akeem Hicks therefore I think he has to be above Brown uh, Javon Kinlaw comp that Renner used was Stefan Tuitt, you know, given that six, six length and the ability to kind of move up and down the line of scrimmage Kinlaw. Um, he's got some quicks. He's got some explosiveness to him combined with that length. It, mm -hmm. the, all these guys have, I, I try not to get caught up in the freak plays. There is a play. I think it's Derek Brown comes off the sideline 
and then he just destroyed somebody in the right. open field. Because he got a full be- run at him. It's because nobody knew that he was there, but it was it was fun it, it was fun to see. But Kinlaw's got plays where he like drops into coverage, it moves well, it makes plays in space. Um, so there's a lot to like about about Kinlaw's game. Yeah, I mean that play he engaged his block with like a seven yard r- full sprint run up. Like pretty much any defensive lineman in the world would knock a guy on his ass if he had a seven yard run up at it. For a lot of these guys, pad level is an issue too. Once you're up at six, 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 seven, I think Kinlaw does play low for his size, so he'll he can win in both the run game and the pass game. Um, beyond that, Jordan Elliott from Missouri is the guy. We've got an article going up um, sometime this week, I believe, might be today, today about I think, why, yeah. yeah, why he's a first round talent from Missouri. And I don't know. Again, I don't keep up with NFL hype a ton, but I don't think people are putting him in the first round. He's produced like a first rounder. He's another guy. Like he looks like a he plays like a squattier tackle, but he's like six four three fifteen. He's got good size, and he and he you know plays like a smaller guy. Number one graded defensive interior lineman in the in the draft class this past season. So as much as the talk is about Ken Law and Derek Brown, Jordan Elliott was the guy that was graded number one. So there's three guys I would say are legitimate first round talents. I would say beyond that. On our list, numbers four. I, why did Marlon Davidson end up at number four? I'm unhappy with that. I tried to fight <laughs> against that. Marlon Davidson from number four to about Devon Hamilton at number eight. So we have Davidson from Auburn at four. Justin Matabuike from Texas A&M. Neville Gallimore from Oklahoma. Ross Blacklock from TCU. And Devon Hamilton from Ohio State. Those next guys. Can you say number 10's name there, Sam? Can I say number 10's name? Josh. John? Uh, no. No, I'm not doing that. Sorry, John. Yeah, I'm not. No. <laughs> Not doing it. <laughs> oh, it's the big nose tackle from Utah. Pinasini? Yep. Hmm. That feels like one you might have got changed along the way, you know, you would rather think. than decided that, no, this is this is the family name. We're proud of it. I'll talk about him in a minute. Um, Marlon Davidson is probably the toughest one to project here because he played true edge defender at Auburn, and he's like 300 pounds. Like, he can't play on the edge at the next level. Um, so it's a huge projection. He didn't play a ton on the interior. Um some of these other guys did. Neville Gallimore is one of my just pure favorites. Remember, remember how much I love Dominique Easley mm-hmm. in Florida. Yeah, I loved <laughs> Dominique Easley because Dominique Easley honestly is like if it wasn't for the fact that you still had um, who's the dude who's your true Barkevius Mingo. Yeah, yeah. If it wasn't for the fact that Barkevius Mingo was still a thing, you, like Dominique Easley would be your your guy who was like oh, he's he's still available. Why aren't people calling? Well, let me just take you through my process here, right? I watched Matabuike from A&M, Neville Gallimore from Oklahoma, and Ross Blacklock from TCU, all in a row. Matabuike, I'm like, man, he just looks technically sound, makes a ton of plays. He's strong, good technique, solid. Blacklock, weird scheme at TCU, but like low pad level. He's a disruptor, this and that. And then you get to Gallimore, who ran in like the four sevens. I got to see what he actually ran. And he just flies off the ball, has no idea where he's going, but he's in the backfield, right? And that that was Dominique Easley. Dominique Easley, I thought, had the best first step since probably Gerald McCoy a few years earlier, right? Pure first step, pure disruption was just out of this world. But he didn't really finish plays, didn't always have great technique, didn't always know where the football was. But boy, was he tough to block. That's what Neville Gallimore reminds me of at Oklahoma. Let's go for the uh, the full PFF podcast bingo right here. But I used to play with a guy in the Irish League who oh called Stephen O'Connor. 
And he was similar style of player in terms of really disruptive, really fast, would shoot through the defensive line, was just in the backfield all the time, right? And we were maybe like a year or two, like maybe year two, like halfway through a sophomore campaign of him playing. And he'd been like wrecking offenses for like a year and a half at this point. Gets to the huddle, leans over to a guy and goes, Sully, yeah, what's a down? <laughs> Literally had no idea what he was doing. Was just told, get in the backfield, get the ball. That's great. So that's Neville Gallimore, man. When you if, when you look at his um, his combine too was ridiculous, right? Yeah. Uh, good and bad. One seven one ten yard split. So eighty sixth percentile. So he gets off the ball on the field. It showed up at the combine. Still somehow only ran a five a five oh one. Uh, I'm sorry. This is at the shuttle five five point zero one. Anything over like four six. Yeah. is like, all right, dude, you can barely uh, change directions. <laughs> so that's why this guy's like in the backfield, but he can't, you know, laterally move to get the ball. And then his 40 was 479, which is the 98th percentile. This is like the Trey Wayne's like straight line can't move right. laterally to to, to, do, to an extreme. If, if you were projecting um, AJ Epinesa, who we'll get to in the edge rushers, if you were projecting him as an interior player, how high do you think he'd go on that list? Oh, man, I think he's... I think he's right behind Kinlaw. Right. Right, right, right ahead of Derek Brown. And that's a good a, a good segue. By the way, uh Penasini from Utah <laughs> is like that's the guy you get uh, in the fifth round to play two down nose tackle. He's the guy in this draft to just be a a big run stuffer. Um Epinesa, would you say that's fair? It's like between him and Kinlaw is the best interior player, but he's not like a true hold up every down interior player. They're talking about Epinesa here. Yeah, and that I, th- I think he probably goes behind Derek Brown just because it's more projection and more question marks. But I think it's yeah, he's he's a really strange case because he's. I mean, the question would be how much weight can he pack on, right? Because he basically had a combine performance that says you cannot play on the edge. You just yeah. you do not have the even like Trey Flowers, who was a sort of you know, a slower, stouter, run-defending edge player, but at least wasn't, like, catastrophic in terms of movement and athleticism and, and all those kinds of things. Epinesa had the kind of combine that's like, no, you, you cannot function there. You're going to have to move inside. At that point, now we need to start thinking about, all right, you're 270-something. Like, how much can you get on? Because you're going to need to be, like, 285 to play inside. you got to pack on at least 10 pounds of muscle, and you got to hope that doesn't do anything to your already catastrophic movement skills. Yeah, he does. So he reminds me of um, Trey Flowers. I mean, he's the guy that I yeah. used as a cop, right? And uh, the way his, his hands, his length, the, the strength in his hands, the way he wins and all that stuff, um, he did. He had some really good. We're talking about Austin Jackson from USC and how he doesn't know how to use his hands and all that stuff. Epinesa showed him in the bowl game, you can't use your hands. Like he, he whooped him a couple times. So um, I still think though, you don't need to be an elite pass rusher in base, right? Like you just need to, uh, you do, you want, you need to play the run and you compress the pocket. And then if you do kick in Epinesa, so I would still use him the way Trey flowers is used, which is edge on early downs. And then you could go head up nose. You could put him over the guard. I would still move Epinesa around, but I don't think you move him to the interior full time unless it's like hey you're going to be an old school five technique in a three right. four where he does have the length but you're still you're still head up over tackles for the most part when you do that so it's not truly um 
you know, facing guards and centers all the time. I think FNS is all right in that role. I will say, looking at their uh, combine performances, it's actually closer than I thought it was. So Trey Flowers ran a 4.9340. Evanessa yep. was 5.04. That fact that there's a 5 at the start will be the thing that like triggers right. people in their head. Right. Um, 28 bench reps versus 17. All right, that's pretty significant. But the bench press is like the least predictive thing in the combine. Um, vertical was 36.5 for Trey Flowers. It's 32.5, so there's four inches there. There's four inches on the broad, but they had ex- the exact same three-cone time, and Epinesa was four, four, six, uh, six hundredths of a second slower in the 20-yard shuttle. So the movement stuff, the change of direction stuff, was actually about the same. I think it's the 10-yard that's the, the biggest issue. Like, Renner's top note, too. Is, is, in the pros and cons and the draft guide burst is nothing for this guy for the for an edge defender as uh, you know, talking about Epinesa so um, that would be the issue right when you face yeah. these really good NFL offensive tackles if they're not threatened to the edge um, that would be the the big question mark so I have no problem kicking him into guard uh, over the guards when you need to uh, Chase Young obviously is going to be our clear top edge defender um, I think it's huge question marks after that like even Peter King in his column said Caleb on chase on from LSU, he's the clear number two edge, right. um, but he has the opposite problem as Epinesa. Why, with all the tools and skills that he had, uh, why was the production not there? Well, he's the classic example of that, right? He's the he's the Josh Allen or the he's the toolsy guy at this position that doesn't have the production that everyone is going to project way higher because it's like, well, if I can just get these top end plays out of him the whole time, blah blah blah. Him going midway through the first wouldn't surprise me in the slightest because it's exactly the kind of player that that happens for. And we have seen some examples of those panning out. And interestingly, we've seen some examples from that school panning out, you know, Danelle Hunter. But it's still, I think, a valid question mark. Well, I think the thing is, it's a very, it's the question you should be asking. The interesting thing is, what is the answer you've come to? So if you're taking him in the middle of the first round, you have an answer to that question. And it's an answer that you believe doesn't apply to his NFL prospects, right? Whatever it is. Now, from our look through it, from our tape and all that kind of stuff, we haven't come up with an answer. Like there's no obvious, oh, it's because the scheme asked him to do X, Y, and Z. And if you take that away, you get a devastating edge rusher. There's no like obvious, this is the reason for this lack of production. Therefore, the reason is him, at which point, that's risky. Yeah, I mean, again, the highlight reel plays are great, um, but you know, has some work to do. Uh, like I said, though, best in the class on stunts. Mm. The speed that he creates on stunts is just spectacular. So I think you the get fact him that, unblocked up the middle. So Epines is our number two. There are question marks there. Curtis Weaver's our number three. He produced really well for us. I have my own questions because it felt like he was beaten up on bad right tackles with a simple swipe move over and over. So there's question marks about Weaver at Boise. Julian Aquara, you know, he's kind, he's not completely a linebacker. He could move there. He's explosive. He was good, not great from a production standpoint. There's question marks there, and we have Chase on at number five. So I could easily see why a team would have Chase on at number two. I think the other name to watch, Josh Uche from Michigan can get after the quarterback and uh, Yatur Gross Matos from Penn State. He reminds me a little bit of JPP as like a length, toolsy type of guy who, again, is probably better against the run than as a pass rusher. So um, it's not a great 
group of edge defenders where you usually get your best guys in the first round. And honestly, there's Chase Young and Epinesa might be the only guys worth first rounds. So, yeah, so Chase on is the other one that's probably going to go in the first. There have been some other guys that are getting first, like Gross Matos is getting first round hype, right? Because because of the JPP thing that I'm saying, I'm not saying he's the same type of player. But when you look at the length and everything he had, like everything that he brings to the table from like a skill set standpoint, it's there. But once yeah. again, the production's good, not great. Sure. You know? I'm just saying, like, who else is potentially getting first round hype that we should be knocking down? Because they, <laughs> because they don't I think that's it. it. I mean, Julian Aquara is the guy that I think reminds me a little bit of Jamie Collins, who played edge in college and, you know, could do various things and has the burst and power and various, you know, but um, it's still rather him probably in the side. I'd rather a lot of these guys in the second mm-hmm. over the first. Um. Let's touch on linebacker quickly. We've got Isaiah Simmons just by name listed as the top linebacker. Whether you want to call him a safety or a linebacker, it doesn't matter. We've talked about Simmons quite a bit, though. Um, Uber versatile player. Uh, Patrick Queen's going to be our number two. There's a big debate. And Daniel Jeremiah tweeted this out a few weeks ago. There's a huge debate in dra- draft rooms back end of the first. Patrick Queen from LSU or Kenneth Murray from Oklahoma. We've solved that by putting Queen as our number two linebacker and Murray at number six. So there's a big difference between how we feel about those guys. Queen is an outstanding athlete and playmaker, so that's why he's getting the number two spot there. Yeah, and I think, the, I mean, this is a bad process in terms of like helmet scouting, but those LSU guys have been churning out this sequence of fast linebackers that have overachieved at the next level compared with what we thought they could potentially do. So Absolutely. I think that, that part makes some sense. Willie Gay from Mississippi State, another really good athlete. Zach Bond, I would say, is the interesting name. Uh, questionable interviews, per my sources. Hmm. Yep, questionable interviews with Zach Bond from Wisconsin. But I like his skill set, too. He's very similar to Josh Uche from Michigan. Uh, Bond was essentially an edge rusher, but he's got some plays on tape where he just straight up runs with J.K. Dobbins down the field. Like He's he's a linebacker convert, though. Oh, I'm going full. We're going full helmet scouting with the linebackers. It's, uh, it's Joe, Joe Schobert, right? It's Joe Schobert, obviously. Yeah. No, he is similar, right? He's the guy that Schobert was an edge, turned into a, a linebacker prospect. Those are the guys, and I need to study this further, every single year, right? We say, oh, I know how I would use this guy, right? Early down linebacker, movable chess piece, and nickel and dime. And it rarely actually works out that way. Um, it's not like well, Schobert's no, like an actual edge. Well, it, it's more so. Th- here's the way I look at it. There's 64 edge rushers that are in, in the world. There's 64 guys who are paid to rush the passer in nickel and dime situations, right? Which isn't a lot. And to be one of them, you got to be the top guy. You can't just be a guy who's like pretty good in college. So that's. The issue where I would use them, though, is assuming I've got one of those top 64 guys. They're already on my team. Now I have a guy who's got this good skill set who could beat tackles in college. Now I can blitz them and isolate them on backs and use them um, in, in a different way. That's where I think that skill set can be tapped into. But it doesn't always work out that way. It's interesting. Th- teams have just stopped doing that as a concept. The, the, the classic Von Miller, Bruce Irvin role of you play Sam linebacker for base downs and then you kick in to be the pass rusher in nickel situations. I don't know if it's because there's been such a shift in the percentage of nickel and dime defense that that's now the starter and the guy that was the starter playing Sam is now not even on the field for most of the, the plays. Because um, it's, it's almost as if like that role now would actually make more sense than it did when they were using it, which is 
now they're actually doing the thing they're really good at almost all the time. And then you just need to be able to like 20, 25% of downs. You need to be able to go and play like crappy two down linebacker, right? Right. Like rather than come off the field completely. Now, maybe it's, maybe that is why, like maybe they think that the, the time they're off the field is actually useful in terms of recovery so that you can rush the passer more efficiently when you're on there. I don't know why that, that role is, is starting to disappear. The only guy I can think of that's doing it at the moment was um, Shaquem Griffin. And that's only because they couldn't figure out what to do with him. Yeah. I mean, even he even Khalil start. Mack did some of that early. I mean, we're talking like not long ago, like the right. beginning like, of the decade. Yeah, that yeah. was a pretty common thing. We're like seven or eight years away from that being a really popular way of using these sort of tweener, edge rusher, linebacker guys. Then now, where I actually think schematically it makes more sense than it ever did, for some reason it's disappeared as a like a way of using those players. All right, let's wrap it up on the defensive side, move into the secondary. Let's start with corner. Um, our list differs from the NFL. So our perception, because of the positional value aspect, and, and here's the key, right? We're putting these, we're putting some corners in the first round, knowing that the payoff is going to be uh, maybe you know, the 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 risk is worth the potential reward, but there is inherent risk in there um, because we're projecting cornerbacks. Jeffrey Akuda is the number one. NFL agrees, I think, across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, the the rumors around the NFL that is that C.J. Henderson from Florida is the number two, and then there's just a a whole plethora of different options: three, four, five, six, seven, or however that breaks down. We have Christian Fulton from LSU at number two, C.J. Henderson at number three, uh, Jalen Johnson from Utah at number four, and A.J. Terrell from Clemson at number five. Now, the fact that NFL teams disagree with each other, pretty common, even internally, because this is such a tough position to project. Uh, I think we have some disagreements, too. I think you're a little bit higher maybe on Jeff Gladney, right, at TCU. So, like, where do you stand on some of these corners and – uh, their rankings and, and again fit is just going to be so crucial for all these guys that's the thing right so it's like wide receiver again it's i think in this case there's one guy that is so jeffrey kuda is like cd lamb right and that you can put him in any offense in any role or defense in any yeah. role in kuda's case and he's good right nobody and he's he, not only is he good but he's probably the best corner of this group so he's the one guy that's bulletproof that all 32 nfl teams should want after that Almost every single person is at least to some degree scheme specific. So Christian Fulton, I think, is the best zone corner in this group. So all the teams that play a ton of zone are really keen on Christian Fulton. The teams like the Lions that play man coverage more than anything else don't want any part of him because I don't think that's his skill set. Then you've got like lower down, you've got a Trevon Diggs, who I think the opposite is probably true. Um, And then there's a few other guys like that. So depending on the scheme you run, and C.J. Henderson is is a guy that I think is closer in terms of um, bulletproof, in terms of an all-round skill set. He's like, so uh, for receivers, if CeeDee Lamb is the one guy that can do everything, for me, Denzel Mims is another one of those guys. I'm just less confident in it, right? Denzel Mims, I think, in theory, develops into a guy that can do everything in every offense. C.J. Henderson, I think, is the is is the uh, the Denzel Mims to Akuda's CeeDee Lamb for corners, right? I think in theory, he can do everything for every defense. I'm just an awful lot less confident in that than I am for Akuda. In terms of our list, the guys that I would adjust, maybe, I, I think I would have Gladney a little bit higher than seven. I'd probably bump him up to five. Dantzler, I think we're probably hating on because of the crappy combine, which I honestly think might be 
not I don't think that's representative necessarily of how fast he is. I think he's faster than that. Now, he might not be as fast as the 438 pro day time that he ran, but that's a different matter. So I think Dantzler probably deserves to be a couple of spots higher because I think his tape is honestly kind of speaks for itself. I don't think you look at his tape and when that's a guy that's going to run 47 and stink. Yeah. Like he's good. And right. I think people are killing him because his like his timing at the combine was so it was like this is now catastrophically bad. You didn't reach certain thresholds that we need to even think of you as a corner. Yeah, so I, yeah, it, it's a fascinating group because of all that stuff. Dantzler, even in our internal meetings, Renner does really like him quite a bit. Um, I look at all these guys. I think it's a class where they all just move extremely well. Like when I'm looking at a corner, a lot of my notes end up being like. How did you play in press? How did you play in off? And all these guys, and how your, what your footwork look like, especially for your size. Akuda's got good size and footwork. Fulton moves really well. C.J. Henderson is an outstanding athlete. Jalen Johnson from Utah for a big guy, like he can hang a bigger type of corner, right? Anytime you're up at that six foot range, I'd just call you a big corner, right? Hmm. Um, Jalen Johnson moves well. A.J. Terrell moves well. Uh, I thought Jeff Gladney too. I mean his. 4-3 speed that he clocked in before the season. I think he was in the 4-4s four at the Combine, but like he's he's battle-tested too, man. Like Gladney weeks in a row was facing like Tylen Wallace from Oklahoma State. He's facing Oklahoma. He's facing Denzel Mims. I mean, he's battle-tested, and that's why the production was not great, but he had an outstanding 2018. I think I'm with you more on, on Gladney. I think Trevon, I think once you get to like Trevon Diggs and Bryce Hall, though, you start to lose some of that special movement skills and those guys become a little bit more scheme dependent. Oh, I think they're very scheme dependent. Um, Hall is another one that's really interesting because if you, if he didn't have the 2019 tape or season, I think he'd be way higher on this list. Now he'd still be scheme dependent. I think he's, and he's a weird mix of scheme dependency. And I think he's really good either way off or right in a guy's face and nothing in between. Um, and that's a, that's almost like a Richard Sherman esque sort of scheme situation to be in, right? He either bails and plays a deep third or he's like jamming a guy and, and messing up with his release. Yeah. With Hall, with Hall, I feel it's, it's tough. Cause these guys are, you know, there's small sample size plays too. Like even watching his 2018 tape, he made so many plays in off coverage. Sure. Um, when he pressed, I feel like it, tell me the difference here, Sam, right? There's some guys I feel like are better using their hands and other guys are better at just mirroring, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, I'm not necessarily going to use my hands. I'm just going to mirror your movements and stick with you. Hall looked like he was really good just mirroring and press. But once he tried to get physical, he was knocked off balance. He let guys get behind him. How do you, like, how do you, how do you think the NFL balances that as a skill set? Is it like, Hey, we're going to put you in press, do what's most comfortable. Or do you feel like a guy like that? has to learn how to use his hands a little bit better. I think he's going to need to learn it, but I think he's, I don't think he's terrible at that. I think that is, that's very team to team specific, right? It's what exactly do you want to achieve with your press coverage? Because even when we're recording it, there's like multiple different ways. Like, what do you record, right? Do you record a guy in press alignment, even though he's not actually going to try and jam the receiver at the line, he's just going to mirror him and kind of get in his way at, at the release or do you say, no, we only want to record like a jam, like a guy who's actually going to try and physically disrupt your release off the line and not let you get into your pattern? 
those are essentially two completely different things. And that was one of the things when I was going through trying to find snaps against press coverage for KJ Hamler, I literally didn't find a single one where somebody tried to jam him. I found one snap where a guy like flashed hands at him as if he was faked it essentially, you know, threw out a hand to see what he would do, but didn't actually try. Everything else was I'm impressed alignment and I'm just going to mirror your release. So I think that's very team to team specific. A lot of teams don't want their guys to start lunging because if you do that and miss, you're screwed. Like that's the single worst thing that can happen is you have, you, you have a guy isolated in man coverage as a corner. He goes for the jam, misses it. And now he's a yard and a half minimum out of phase, desperately trying to get back before the ball arrives, which will be right. imminently if the quarterback saw what happened. Yeah, I think that's when when you watch all the corner class and you start to get to some of the lower guys, they're just like way too comfortable letting receivers stack them and get in being in phase and all that stuff. And it's it's really tough to play like that. All of these top guys, though, are, are much better at that. So um, I think when you look at this corner class as a whole, because of the nature of the position, there's a lot of boomer bust there. There's guys we'd be willing to take in the first. There's guys like AJ Terrell from Clemson. There's always a guy that I have where I watch a lot of film on him, and I just don't have I just don't have an opinion. That was my t- that's, I call that my Tyler Boyd. I'm like, wow, there's some awesome here, and there's just some meh over here, and I just don't have a conclusion. That's my AJ. That's AJ Terrell for me. And uh, Renner's really high on him. He got whooped by LSU uh, in the championship game. Uh, but uh, that's the last people saw of him. But Renner still yeah. believes in his size and movement skills a lot. Two things about that. One, it feels like those guys are those guys hang around for a long time. You know, the guys that you can't yeah. you can't pull a solid opinion on. They're just they're just you know there, right? Reasonable. It feels like those guys actually have quite a high ceiling because there's nothing there's nothing to pull out that's hateable. Um, and then the, hateable. the national title thing, yeah. So he got whooped, right? On the other hand, so did pretty much everybody that faced Chase. And two... Jamar Chase was awesome. Man. He is yes. awesome. Two, I, he didn't get whooped that bad. Like, you know, the, he first he, he won a couple of plays early on that nobody's going to remember because he got beat afterwards. He did make right? a couple of nice plays. Yep. Two, like he was kind of contesting most of the big plays, which is better than getting torched, you know, just outright annihilated. And three... If you rewind the clock a full year to the previous national title game, he hung with all all of Alabama's absurd wide receivers and didn't get wrecked. Like, I, I don't know how much... Like, a lot of people are pulling out Trevon Diggs' tape against Jamar Chase as well and being like, what, this is your guy? Like, I, I, I honestly don't know that you can pull that out as representative tape of anything. Like, Jamar Chase is absurdly good and beat everybody. Therefore... I mean, like, it's like pulling out some guy's tape against Randy Moss in the NFL. I mean, like, well, he can't play in the NFL. My Jamar Chase comp is a bigger Antonio Brown. It feels like there is a bigger Antonio Brown in the annals of NFL history somewhere. Like, it feels like that's pointing to an actual player. Maybe there's a better player. Here's the thing. I just looked at him and I was like, he's physical at the line of scrimmage getting off press. He's physical at the catch point, and he's just got the he's subtle hand. Maybe it's like Jordy Nelson, little Jordy Nelson to his game. Because I don't know if Ch- Chase is going to run fast or any of that stuff. I just know that dude knows how to get open. He knows how to get open off press. He knows how to get open at the catch point. He's going to win a ton. And Nelson that was Antonio was, Brown. Nelson was like a sprinter. He's, he was. He's, yeah, he was fast. But like Nelson, by the end of his career, like when he was at his peak, 
yeah. was like really good at the line of scrimmage and at the catch point. That's the only that's why comparisons aren't easy across the board. But the, the Antonio Brown thing for me is just like I can't pinpoint to one thing. He's just going to go get the football. He tracks it well. He pushes off subtly to get there. All of that stuff. I feel like Jamar Chase has it. I, I think he'd be wide receiver one in this class, but that's another story. All right, let's wrap it up quickly with safety. Uh, Grant Delpit is our number one. By the way, we have Isaiah Simmons as a safety in certain parts of our website, so we'll sort that out. That's what, that's the confusion that Isaiah Simmons brings. So uh, in the non-Isaiah Simmons department, Grant Delpit, number one, 36 missed tackles a couple uh, over the last couple of years, big question mark, but he's got yeah. outstanding center field and um, just deep safety type of skills. Xavier McKinney from Alabama, number two. Ashton Davis from Cal, number three. Antoine Winfield Jr. from Minnesota, number four. And Kyle Duggar. The small schooler, Lenore Ryan, at, at number five. Geno Stone is one of those sleepers in this class. I think we're higher on than others from uh, from Iowa. He comes in at number six. Any thoughts on some of the safeties? One more name to throw in there is Kenny Robinson from West Virginia and the, the defunct now St. Louis Battlehawks. God rest her soul. Yeah. Um, talk to me. Didn't Renner have him as like a first-round guy before he had to bounce to the XFL? Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think he liked him. I know the analytics guys liked him from the from a projection standpoint. Look, there's always one safety that sneaks into the first round, and um, I asked I asked Renner who that would be last year. Darnell Savage. I kind of nailed it. I always, you know, I kind of tweeted out. I, you know, there'll, there'll be somebody, and then I I didn't think it was that random because we put a first round grade on right. Darnell Savage. But that one made sense. But Terrell it did Edmonds kinda, less so. It happened late. Uh, Terrell Edmonds less so, but Jeremy Chin from Southern Illinois is the one yes. that he's number 10 on our list that Renner said, hey, he could be the safety that just shows up in like the 20s. I could buy that 100%. I think there are some people that are absurdly high on Jeremy Chin. I'm not even sure they're wrong. Like he's got some pretty special skills that I think could definitely see him propelled up. the li- Like if he went in the first, it would be a dramatically better pick than Terrell Edmonds going in the first. Oh, no, that's fair. Um, I'm a big fan of Ashton Davis from Cal. I just think he's got he picked off Herbert on a seam route. He's got some some free safety range. And then Xavier McKinney, we've talked about quite a bit here. I'm back and forth on him because I think he's got slot type of footwork, but he just feels small at the catch point when he's got to face tight ends. And that might be one of his roles at the next level. So McKinney, I think, is versatile, can do a lot of things. He's like Isaiah Simmons, light, light, but because he doesn't have the pure straight line speed. So I have some question marks, but man, he is intriguing as a guy. We talked about the Malcolm Jenkins comp to yeah. do that type of thing. So, so that's it, man. Top 10 kickers. Um, don't draft a kicker. <laughs> Rodrigo Blankenship. That's all you need to with know. His, with his giant, uh, like NHS chemistry glasses that he wears. <laughs> Just get Rodrigo. Um, our guy Timo has done a fantastic job of basically saying you can't predict kickers. There's no, there's just nothing. You just can't do it. So, uh, the, so the interesting thing about that, Justin Tucker, right. That was the interesting thing to me. Cause it, so all takes exposed, pulled out all the old, um, all the old, uh, damn it. What is wrong with my memory at the moment? Roberto Aguayo. Yes. The Roberto Aguayo second round pick tweets. Everyone's like, I, I, the guy's a stud. I actually like, I like it. I liked him taking him in the second round. If he answers the kicker spot for the next 15 years, it's a great pick. And so obviously the Aguayo thing was a disaster. And honestly, it was a disaster that we could see at the time because even as a college kicker, he wasn't that good. But what was interesting to me is, okay, if it was Justin Tucker, 
Like if Aguayo had been Justin Tucker, how high should he be taken? Right. That to me is the intriguing question. And so from Timo's work, I, I asked him that question. I was like, all right. So when you look at it, Justin Tucker is basically the best kicker in the NFL by a freaking mile. Like he's, uh, he's the right. Aaron Donald of kickers. He's off on his own in, you know, his own anomalous reading in each one of these sort of charts that they pull out, right? So if you know you're getting Justin Tucker, and the broader point from his study is you can't know that. You'll never predict it. But if you got that, he thinks it's probably worth a third-round pick. I could see that. Now, like if, yeah, if you knew... Yeah, absolutely. If you knew... Because the advantage, too... It, it's also it's the advantage against all other 31 teams, right? It's not just like... In a vacuum, how much does this guy add to your team? It's the fact that you don't have to look for one. Right. Other teams are going to be worse than you at this position, yes. which does put points on the board. Mm-hmm. And it also it, there's also some level of assumption that you haven't uh, moved on from all you know from your fourth down decisions, right? Like sure. there's there's got to be some level of assumption that you're not going to go for every fourth down, and you're not going to be you know completely changing the analytics, and you're going to you know, try 30, 35, 40 field goals in a season. So um, I think that's fair. Like if you knew, if yeah, you I mean, knew ultimately, you the, like his broader point is that you cannot know. Therefore, it's, no, you can't. it's like it's a moot discussion. Right. But and that's how absurd a second rounder is. Yes. Well, that's the thing. So that's how insane the second rounder is that even if you knew you were only even if you knew you were getting Justin Tucker and the bottom line is you can't know that you're still around over drafting him. Here, here's your follow up to Timo. What if you knew you could get a running back that could convert fourth and ones over and over again. Hmm. So you don't need it. So instead in, in lieu of a kicker, I'm going to get this fourth and one converter because I'm going to start going for fourth down. And, and then he would say, get good run blocking. And that's what he'd say. All right, that's it. Those are the PFF NFL draft position rankings. Send all hate to at PFF underscore Mike. If you have any uh, questions or if you disagree with the rankings, go check out PFF.com. Edge and Elite subscribers, if you don't have it yet, go get it right now. The Draft Guide's got over 1,250 pages of awesome. That's what we're going to be using for the draft. Next week is draft week, and Sam, we're already talking about um, a bonus podcast. So I think next week we're going to go Monday, Wednesday, and then Friday. We'll do some kind of round one recap on Friday. That sound good for everybody? Yeah. And then good. we're working on our uh, our off-season plan for the podcast. Got some exciting stuff in store exciting plans in the hopper in the hopper yeah we yeah. get some good stuff it's gonna be great we'll be recapping the draft and, and all sorts of fun stuff so stick with us we'll be back again on thursday with more draft talk next week is draft week and it's just gonna be all great so go get your stuff at pff.com all right guys thanks for tuning in see you again thursday Quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it 
after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did. Go check out Kyler Murray in his NFL debut. That's my favorite thing about NFL Game Pass. You can go back and watch at any time. And if you haven't watched a condensed game yet, you have to try it out. It's every play from the game back to back to back so you can replay an entire NFL game in the fraction of the time it normally takes. It's how I'm able to follow all the MVP candidates, all the breakout stars, and, of course, your waiver wire pickups all season long. To see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash Pro Football Focus NFL.